This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel author of Stocks for the Long Run, and the sixth edition is out wherever books are sold, so get a copy. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Also be joined by my co-host today, Christopher Gennady, who is a global head of research at Wisdom Tree, and Chris and I are both registered representatives of Foresight Fund Services. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We have a fascinating show. We have an author uh, of, of a great Great book here on the program. Also the host of another podcast, Mark Mills, who's the senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. We'll talk to him uh, for the for the, for the show today. But Professor, we're going to kick it off to you. Uh, we've got inflation data. We had uh, the report and and sort of the University of Michigan today. Also, some more on expectations. What are you thinking about the market's response so far? Yeah, well, uh, you know what I thought was going to be. By far the most important news, I don't think really was this week. Now, let me let me be more specific. Um, uh, the PPI, the CPI, and then PPI uh, actually came in at or below expectations. Really, quite tame. In fact, I would some of the whisper numbers were above, and uh, uh, the market was trying to position defensively. Um, they, they they came in good and below. I mean, this is certainly not ammunition at all. Uh, uh, for the Hawks, um, the data might even be better looking into May. Oil prices are down from where they were in the middle of uh, April when this was surveyed. Gasoline is down. Some of the recent used car data that's done on a weekly basis shows some softening. Um, uh, so that might add a, a, a good news for the CPI. I'll tell you what raised my eyebrows, and that was uh, the jobless claims. Uh, wow, that that broke out uh, uh, about twenty thousand over expectations to two sixty four, which I think was the um, the highest in well over a year. Um, it is the earliest real indicator we have. It is also a notoriously volatile <laughs> indicator, as we all know. So as a result, I'm not. I, I'm I'm going to wait till next week, which I now have. When, when when something jumps up like that, you wait for our confirmation next week. Now, it might move back down, and then we'll say, oh, yeah, you know, just a, a blip on the data. Um, but if it moves up, it if it moves up or even stays at this level because it was so above expectation, it might mean a meaningful softening of the labor market. As you know, it's my uh, position that um, – it's now the labor market that's really critical. If if we get a softening of the labor market, um, uh, either a uh, near zero or even negative payroll growth, that'll put an absolute end to the Fed's uh, tightening, no matter really what happens to inflation, unless it, something really way goes out of control there. And, and I don't see that. Uh, because if they really see that unemployment rate, which surprised me, as I said last week, from the 3.4% start going up and payrolls going down in a negative. Remember, they still have a formal dual magnate. Remember, we are going in political season. Um, the Democrats don't want rising uh, unemployment <laughs> going into the presidential election year next year. There'll be a lot of, there's already been some political pressure on the part of Democrats about what is happening so far in the banking and and the Fed and the mistakes that um, it has made. And we have cataloged. So um, uh, I'm going to be looking very closely at that uh, at that jobless claim to see whether we're really going to get a confirming of that uh, data. Um, today, um, I would say I was a little bit surprised at another drop in the University of Michigan um, data. This is the preliminary one. It's it's a it's a pretty well um, it's a, a very old and well regarded 
uh, consumer uh, expectation indicator. It was way below expectations, um, hitting at 57.7. Now, that's not as low as it got um, late last year, but still moving down again. I mean, that was uh, six points below expectations. Um, uh, uh, and, and unfortunately, also, the inflationary expectations component and this is significant, and it's one reason I really think the yields are moving up today, uh, was um, above expectations. Um, you know, we talked about the fact it jumped last week, uh, excuse me, last month on the one year. And I, I attributed that to the, uh, that was taken right after the announcement that OPEC was going to cut the uh, oil supply and we had oil jump. But oil has gone back down, actually, to the levels before OPEC announced, and yet, persistently high. It did tick down one-tenth of a percent, but um, uh, it is still up. And then more worrisome, perhaps, uh, is that the five-year rose to 3.2, which is uh, the highest it's been in this entire cycle. Now, again, preliminary, we we might get a downward revision um, when the final come out in two weeks. Nonetheless, Chairman Powell has pointed to the University of Michigan inflation expectations number, and they do not look comforting. In other words, this is uh, grist in the mill for the hawks on the committee, um, uh, this inflationary expectation number. Uh, so when you get, and you, you know, you combine sour economy and you, uh, you know, with the initial jobless claims, what we've seen is yields um, until today and in the inflation data moved down Fear of recession go up, value stocks falling relative to the growth stocks, which are now considered to be more of a haven, um, uh, especially as interest rates fall and especially as the dollar is soft um, uh, and so much of their uh, a lot of their um, uh, revenues do come from abroad and therefore soft dollar is very favorable for them. So we see a further deterioration in the value growth. Uh, equation which might uh, continue. Uh, again, next week we do have retail sales. Everyone is looking at it. It's not unimportant to say the least, but um, I'm going to keep my eye on uh, the jobless claim data. Uh, let me say also just uh, we're getting a lot of news about the debt ceiling. Uh, uh, you, you know my reaction. There will not be a default. Um, uh, I, I don't also think that June 1st is a hard deadline. Um, I think it's a real soft deadline. Uh, we're, you know, we're going to get uh, estimated payments uh, for the month of June. We'll start coming in and probably ex- extend the, the, the deadline way into June. In fact, possibly into July. Um, and they can kick, you know, they can put a two month you know, pause on it, etc. I do not believe there will be a discount. I do believe that the Democrats feel pressured to meet the Republicans some way. I think if they meet them and claim they meet them halfway, of course, the Republicans could say they're not meeting me halfway. But that is a good political position for the Democrats um, to say, listen, you know, we're we're meeting you halfway, even though, you know, we're spending according to, uh, uh, you know, what Congress is, uh, we need a debt ceiling for what has already been spent and passed by the Congress. So I think that it's a question of winning that political argument. I think the Republicans, if they get, you know, halfway, um, you know, will have to regard it as a victory. However, what's likely if they get it halfway, they will probably want to kick it down the road to next year and see if they can make a uh, deal of it (laughs) really right before the presidential election. Bottom line, yes, I know one year Treasury bills are elevated. Yes, I know the debt. Uh, swaps on uh, U.S. government debt, someone that is higher than Brazil at the present time, not a good sign. But um, I would, uh, you know, my my uh, very strong feeling, you know, 99-1, that uh, there will not be any default on U.S. government debt. A lot of political theater. We wish we could avoid this political theater, but uh, hopefully it, it, it comes to pass, like you say. Um, as, as you think about just sort of final comments to, to kick us off, any as, as you're reading on the equities generally, we've been talking about being cautious in some ways. Uh, how, how are you assessing the, the risk, the upside from where we are today? 
Well, I think it is cautious. I, I think, uh, you know, we will see the value stocks moving down because, uh, you know, they're, you know, we we haven't seen all the banking. There's been some more banking problems, as we know, questions about deposits. Again, there will not be a banking crisis. It's all in the lending uh, restrictions and how that's going to affect uh, the economy uh, in general. And, uh, you know, I, I think those higher lending restrictions that have been confirmed by many surveys are going to be felt in the May, June, July data. Um, and uh, as as most of the money from the pandemic and the inflation eats through all that excess monetary expansion, you're going to see uh, consumers turn more cautious. Um, and I think that's what we see. And that's a recession potential situation. Um Without, I don't think, a big drop in earnings. I think earnings are really very conservatively estimated for the remaining part of this year, uh, but a mild recession, um, and people are positioning for that, and that's what, that's what you see in the stock market. <clears throat> well, Professor, it's, been, it's a Penn graduation weekend. I, I hear you're getting a nice uh, a, a award. for. I'm, I'm celebrating my 20-year anniversary here, 20-year reunion. I have a lot of friends coming back to Wharton. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your your award here that you're getting. Yes, an appreciation award. I go to class of '89. Voted me the their most uh, the, the professor that influenced them the most, and I, I'm very proud to get that. I always love to hear from my former students. So uh, yes, I will be on uh, on campus uh, to, uh, Saturday morning. Well, it's always great. Uh, I could say I, I, I vouch for that award. Uh, you've definitely been the most influential professor for me. So thank you, Professor. Thank Have you. a great uh, great weekend. We'll see you uh, again next week. Absolutely. We're going to turn the conversation to Mark Mills, who is Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, also a strategic partner at the Energy Tech Venture Fund Montrose Lane, and also author of The Cloud Revolution, How the Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the Next Economic Boom and a Roaring Twenties. I also just learned also the host of The Last Optimist podcast. So he's also a podcaster. Uh, Mark, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. And, you know, we got to get these 20s roaring. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> so far, the roaring is headwind so far. You know, you don't often see people who focus both on energy and the cloud. Uh, how, how did your interests come on tech and energy? G give us a little bit about yourself and, and how you, you started focusing on these areas. Well, the, the short story, because it's a long story. At some point, careers get long. I, I began my, my first job out of school. I studied physics in Canada, and, and it was hard to find jobs when I graduated, and I got offered a job not as a physicist, but as a semiconductor and process engineer in large-scale integration. So I went to a semi-fab, and uh, it was a, a great, uh, fortunate thing because I like building things. I like manufacturing. The working in a manufacturing plant was a gift, and I worked some at Bell Labs, the RC Labs, in semiconductors, um, in uh, fiber optics and lasers, and then missile guidance. But that, for, for arcane reasons, which I won't go into, I ended up working in the nuclear industry in Canada <laughs> back in the day and worked for Canada's uranium refiner and mining company. Uh, so I learned a lot about mining uh, by working in a mining company and about nuclear energy. I um, was involved in Canada's big – Canada launched a what we call here a presidential commission. It was a parliamentary adjudicated panel to decide at the federal level whether Canada should proceed with building nuclear plants or not. So it was a adjudicated kind of hearing, like a court case. And this was back pre-Three Mile Island. This was back when I was a young man where there was a lot of debate about issues specifically related to proliferation of, of nuclear weapons. Anyway, so I arrived in the United States uh, in time to spend the week of the accident at the accident of Three Mile Island. And then the next six years of my life defending the virtues of nuclear energy, I obviously failed because, you know, we abandoned nukes. Uh, from there, uh, not the, the, you know, I was in a White House science office, so I worked there both in the missile defense area. This was Star Wars time, as well as the energy part, because this is when we were opening up the Alaska pipeline and a lot of debate about where that oil should go. Japan wanted it. Uh, the uh, labor unions wanted it in America on American ships. The unions won under Reagan, by the way, for people who have any <laughs> political history here. He famously fired the 
the illegally striking uh, air traffic control controller union, but he that's because he struck struck illegally. Whereas the uh, Longshoremen's Union, union, which wanted the Alaskan oil coming down into U.S. ports, um, uh, he repaid the favor. They they helped him get elected. So he's like any other politician. I revered him. I didn't know it was I didn't know then it was such a privilege to work in that White House. In hindsight, it was a, more of a privilege than I understood at the time. Anyway, it's a long answer to. I ended up in the shale oil uh, business, shale gas business, uh, in the early days uh, in a hedge fund. I learned a lot about the early shale industry. At the same time as I was looking into new energy technologies and new computing technologies, so it's odd. My my career has at the, has been at the intersection of both. As a physicist, I would tell you that you can't you can't you can't run computers. Let me tell you the obvious without plugging them in and manufacturing them. That takes energy and a lot more than most people realize. So I spent a long time. I believe I was the first person to publish a rough approximation of the total electricity appetite of the internet. This is in 1999. It ignited a firestorm of unhappiness in the tech community for pointing out the obvious. If you plug in hundreds of millions of computers, they'll probably use a lot of electricity. And um, and that led to EPA actually promulgating regulations about energy efficiency in data centers. So mm. I'm probably responsible for that. Not, that's a, not that that's a good thing. And the... Uh, uh, you know, the energy debates uh, on the, during the shale rivers, when I was testified before Congress, I had at that time published a book called The Bottomless Well with my colleague. Uh, this was uh, in 2005, at the peak of peak oil nonsense. So uh, there were lots of experts running around saying we're, the world's running out of oil. We're at peak oil. So 2005, roughly. We had a book come out. It was called The Bottomless Well, which took the polar opposite view. And my colleague and I predicted the oil revolution, uh, getting it right, but being lucky is really important in stocks and in life. But it's also nice to get it right for the right reasons. Well, we got it right for the right reasons. Um, I wrote a paper for the Manhattan Institute, I think 10 years ago now, predicting the quantity of oil and gas the U.S. would export, which was considered kind of nutty. I would testify before the Senate and the House many times. Nobody believed that was going to happen. This was before... um, we revoked the anti-constitutional 40-year law that prohibits American firms from exporting petroleum, crude petroleum. Uh, you, you call it a prohibiting the export of wheat, but you can export bread. Hmm. Now, that's the kind of law that was in place for 40 years, a lunatic law. Nobody thought it could be repealed. Um, I was part of the campaign to not only say why it should be repealed, it, it, it got repealed. And Obama, by the way, quietly signed it into law because it was a veto-proof majority in the House and Senate that um, passed that law. So that's a long answer to I've, very interesting. I've spent a life in both worlds. And of course, technology makes energy possible. There's Everybody in their head has this sense that you know wind is free, but oil is not. All energy forces, all energy sources are free. We didn't create them. Whether you think God created them or they've always been there, doesn't, ma- doesn't matter to me. We didn't create them, and they're free. All the entire cost of energy is in the machines, the technology that you use to access natural resources, and the cost you have to pay to governments and private businesses, the vig, to use the land. Because all energy sources use land. All energy sources require machines to be built. They're all based on technology. So when I started studying energy, I came at it from a technology perspective, not a geophysics perspective, because it's all about technology. And, of course, the biggest change in technology in the last 40, 50 years, you know, drum roll is like the no-duh, computing. So ultimately, computing has to have an impact not on energy demand. It does. The global cloud uses twice as much electricity as the country of Japan. It's a big infrastructure. But it also eventually has to have an impact on energy supply, uh, which is just beginning. It's not. This has not been um, not been an easy task to bring the power of computing into industrial domains, other than the back office for accounting and spreadsheets. But the real real impact of computing in industrial domains is just beginning. Which is why I'll, I'll finish my my my, uh, <laughs> my rant here. Uh, this is why I wrote my book, because there's a lot more going on in technology broadly uh, than people realize. But the epicenter of the big revolution in our near future is, is obviously and clearly the cloud. Well, I think we would want to drill into both of these topics in great detail. It's, it's rare that you have somebody with both expertises. Let, let, let's stick on the energy as just this kicking off point for a second. Um, 
because and I, I saw some of your recent pieces published on, on the Manhattan Institute and some of your recent testimony. And, and, and I, and it, it coalesces with, I was listening to Warren Buffett's annual shareholder meetings talking about his yeah. investment in yeah. Occidental and, and the Permian and the shale. And he talked about all this new supply we got sort of extra 5 million barrels. I forget the exact time period, but he talked about the wells running dry much quicker than they did 50 years ago when we were drilling. What, what's your view on just the American energy, uh, shale revolution, this the, the lastingness, how much supply is, is there here? Since you said you talked about this uh, back in 2005, I'm curious on your view on, on what's happening in American energy production and what we should be doing. So I'm in the, I'm in the same camp as uh, Warren Buffett in the sense that he's he's doubled down on his bet on, on domestic oil and gas production. I mean, he owns a huge hunk of oxy, uh, and you'd have to look at that and scratch your head if you really believe in the quote energy transition and you think Warren Buffett's not a fool, why, why would you put so many billions on a um, domestic oil and gas producer? I mean, why would you do that? I mean, he's not doing it for political reasons or emotional reasons. He, he's nothing if not rational. Uh, so he's, he's expressed a bet. He hasn't said we aren't going to have more windmills and Teslas. He's just expressing a bet on where oil is going to go, which is the same bet as I've made and said and predicted. So first, for context, the the shale revolution wasn't a discovery of oil. Shale, shale rock, uh, the, it, the fact that it contains oil and gas has been known for well over a century. In fact, it's been known for millennia. But as a practical, you know, modern matter, U.S. Geological Survey mapped the shale fields out a century ago. We know where they are. We didn't discover them recently. What we what we did is develop technology that made it economically viable to extract the oil and gas from the shale rock. Shale rock is called source rock. So the oil and gas that we've been drilling for up until now has under the incredible pressure of the earth above the rock, right? Five, 10,000 feet of earth. It squeezes oil and gas out of those rocks into pools. We drill straight down, right? In one of those pools, if you search for it, with, you know, a seismic imaging and you get oil and gas comes gushing out because it's, it's under pressure. It's already been leaked for millennia out of the rock. but the primary, the mother load of the oil and gas is in the rock still. By an order of magnitude more oil and gas, orders of magnitude more oil and gas globally are in those rocks. So if you drill into the rock, this is what the fracking revolution is, and you drill horizontally following the shale seam, and then you hydraulically fracture microscopically. This is not like an earthquake. You're hydraulically putting water pressure to crack the rock and, and push with the water and soap, surfactant, sand into the rock cracks. What happens then is the pressure above that area, you know, five, 10,000 feet of rope, causes the gas and oil to gush out. So you've stimulated the rock to release the gas and oil in time frames of, you know, weeks and years instead of millennia. The increased production of oil and gas from the shale revolution, the advent of horizontal drilling and the technologies all around that, the increased U.S. production of oil and gas was the largest increase in energy supply and the fastest time period ever in the history of the world, just to put it in context. The amount of extra energy supplied to the world by the United States on the, in the t 10 years of the shale revolution was more than 10 times greater than the total addition of all wind and solar that was subsidized and added to, to U.S. grids. And it was three times greater than all the world's oil uh, additions of wind and solar over the same time period. It was a unsubsidized, market-driven. This is why this is why Warren Buffett's in, in, the, in that business. A, a, you know, explosion of uh, production. So the question you'd have today, it was, it was enormous. The only thing comparable was the Gawar oil fields in the 60s in Saudi Arabia, the beginning of the expansion of, of Saudi Arabia's um, oil production to make it the oil power it is, was comparable in timing and volume, but it was took longer and produced less net energy than the shale fields have. It's pretty incredible. So you'd ask yourself, is it done, right? So you hear that the shale wells exhaust themselves more quickly. That's true, That's but it's also irrelevant. The, the question for a, uh, an economist would be, all right, I drill another well. What you wanna know is what is the net cost of drilling in the, in the shale business, it's true. The ex exhaustion of a specific well is much quicker. It's a faster ramp down. It produces oil and gas for decades, but the big production lasts less than a decade. So you have five to 10 years of big production. You get the rapid 
rapid ramp down. In a traditional well, offshore or onshore, you get a much slower ramp down, much, much slower. It's about 10 times slower. Uh, so you have a, a longer tail. But if you're an investor, all I want to know is what's the total production, you're counting the tail, what's the total cost? Well, shale wells are real cheap, and they can be drilled very quickly. So it's, it's interesting. All in economically, they're extremely competitive with traditional wells. But they have a feature that's been ignored in the general discussion, uh, and the Saudis are aware of this feature. And an economist who should care about this feature in business school, you don't have to spend as much capital since the cost of capital actually matters. Not the total amount of capital, but the time of deploying the capital and the total quantity you need. It's extremely important in economics, right? If I, if I need $7 million to drill a well, not $700 million, and I could do 100 wells at $7 million, or one well at $700 million, and assume they produce the same amount of oil and cost exactly the same in capital terms, which is sort of roughly what we're talking about here. Which would you choose? Incremental $7 millions or put all in on $700 million up front? So we know the answer because in economics, the, the, the former is a better bet. What you don't know is whether or not which one is actually cheaper uh, in the long run. Now, it turns out the $700 million bet is a little cheaper. It really is. Offshore wells for a billion dollars produce very cheap oil and very cheap gas. But it's an all-in bet. You want to be a really big company. They're low velocity. It takes five to ten years to do a well in, in the shale fields, six months to a year from decision to production. Uh, in another six months, you got your money back. And in two years, you've doubled your money. In three, tripled it. That's not a bad. That's not a bad investment. Uh, so that's why so much private equity money was gushing in there, especially when, when capital was was free. So, yeah. but the capital costs money for everybody. It doesn't matter whether the capital is free or, in a sense, the, it, it favors the big uh, wells when capital is free. In a sense, if you think about it, if I don't have to pay any interest on a, a billion dollar loan, or if you're paying me to borrow money as the Europeans did. You're going to bias yourself towards big projects. And even then, the shale revolution beat the pants off anything else. Chris, do you want to hop in for a second? Uh, yeah, Mark, I, I had um, an idea come to me this week. I knew we were going to get to speak, and um, it was the most recent example in a train of uh, different articles and headlines that have come out probably over, say, the last six to eight months where you hear these different developments, and it's sort of a nexus of energy, physics, uh, computing, and probably part of it is based on the fact that we have so much more, as you read about in the book, so much more computational firepower to bring to bear on certain questions. And so the topic is fusion. The article <laughs> this week, uh, you know, Microsoft making a certain bet that by 2026, a certain amount of power may or may not come. And you know, you've got that classic story on the other side where fusion is always 20 to 30 minutes, uh, 30 years away. Um, I, I would just love uh, your perspective on what's been going on in uh, recent months here and whether or not there truly is progress or it's all uh, a smokescreen. Well, I wrote about this after the big announcement at the end of last year. I have a short op-ed. Uh, I think it's a, I put it in the New York Post of all places <laughs> because, you know, is there audiences you want to talk to because they're important and they may not be big audiences and there are audiences you want to talk to that are higher volume because they're also important because sometimes sometimes you want to want to bat back a bad idea that takes hold so the bottom line is we've made a lot of progress in the physics of fusion really is that the big announcement that came from the labs at doe labs the end of last year of this so-called break-even announcement um, was a really a really big step a really important one in the physics of fusion and uh, if you read the press release at the time, the director of the lab was very careful to point out that we have no idea how to build a fusion reactor from this advancement. In fact, it didn't have break-even. The break-even was uh, uh, chimerical, to use the uh, Greek god's term, the, the Greek monster. Uh, it counted the photons from the lasers, that, to, the energy in the photons from the lasers. The lasers blasted a little pellet of tritium to produce energy, fuse it. But it didn't count the energy it took to make the lasers emit the light. So it was upside down by a factor of more than 300, maybe closer to 1,000. So, which is beyond obviously not practical, right? You're going to put 1,000 times more energy in to get a unit of energy out. So break-even means all in the energy from the grid going to your machine, you get more out on the other side. 
And that's the only machine, only energy sources humanity can use. Uh, so it's not, it wasn't, it was physics big deal in the engineering world. It, we don't have, we have no idea, uh, not to sound like a naysayer, let's just give a specific example. In order to make it a break-even machine, setting aside the, uh, we have to know how to make lasers of that scale that are efficient themselves. No one has a design. There's not a theoretical design. No one knows how to do that, number one. And if you built them, you have to, you'd have to ignite roughly 10 to 20 of those pteridium pellets per, per uh, minute. Um, that machine can light up uh, one to two pellets uh, every few days. So it's a big leap from um, pe- uh, dozens of pellets a minute to a couple of pellets every few days. So it's, it, it's, a, it's, it's about as close to getting to the moon as, uh, let me give a, a useful analogy, is, well, maybe yeah, the Wright brothers. It's probably the same. The Wright brothers' aircraft showed you can fly, but it surely didn't show you could, you could, you could fly uh, 500 people. Uh, but it showed you could make an airfoil with an engine that would keep a person airborne. Uh, and it certainly didn't demonstrate you could get to the moon because it's the wrong machine because there's no air in space. So the machines that we've seen that people are bragging about are the equivalent to the Wright Brothers airplane. They will bear no resemblance whatsoever to an energy-producing machine. But they do demonstrate a principle in the engineering and physics that, that matters. Now, I'm fully aware a lot of money and enthusiasm in the private equity markets is going into fusion. But, and, I, and I'm thrilled for the fusion scientists. I mean, it's great. Uh, and we'll get something useful out of it in the physics of uh, materials and high temperatures and fusion. And someone might come up with a design that works. It's really a break-even reactor. They don't exist yet. But, you know, there's probably 10 companies claiming they have a path to that. If they demonstrate such, if, and one day somebody will, then the timeline from that demonstration to building the first commercial plant at commercial scale, typically a decade, that would be fast. And then you have to run it for a while and build others to see if they work. So it's another decade of engineering development at scale. So you're 20 years, if it's fast, to you know, centering on a design that's manufacturable. After the epiphany, we haven't had that epiphany yet. And then it's another decade before things start to tip up. And this is true of all technologies. You know, nuclear fission was identified in physics by a woman, Lise Meitner, uh, in 1898, I think. Uh, she should have got the Nobel Prize. It's another piece of history. My book, Nobel Committee, debated. They released their, their minutes from that meeting. They debated. They knew they had it, should give her the prize, but they didn't want to give a woman the prize at that time in history, which is kind of yeah, and you could. It's fascinating to read what they were, why they were debating as much. But and they should have given it to her. They should give it to her ex post facto, posthumously, in my opinion. But they, I don't think they ever give posthumous Nobels out. But then from there to actually doing fission to demonstrate it, which was you know the famous 1939 uh, at Fermi uh, Fermi Labs, which is now Fermi Labs at the University of Chicago, and then from there to building the first commercial nuclear power plant, not a weapon, but a power plant, very different thing was in the, in the mid-50s. So that was from idea to demonstration, 40 years, from demonstration to the first commercial nuclear plant, another 15 years. And from that to a design that was built, we began to build them at scale. It was another decade, the mid-60s. So the mid-60s, we began to build out fission plants. That's exactly the trajectory fusion will follow. There's, there's no reason for it to be any different because everything about the physics of engineering, these kinds of big systems, is the same. And it's the same for airplanes, by the way. It's the same for cars. It's the same for lithium batteries. It's also the same for computers. People think computers were overnight revolution. The first electronic computer was in 1936 at University of Iowa. And the first computer put to work was the famous ENIAC computer in Colossus in 1938-39. And the first commercial computer built was in 1952. And the first useful commercial computers in the mid-60s from IBM. It's a pretty long timeline. So there's, there's this really silly um, clickbait-driven trope that when you read a breakthrough and fusion changes the future, everything is different. Yeah, horse pucky. I mean, it, it's a really big deal in physics. It's irrelevant in terms of what we're going to supply the world with the energy for the next two or three decades. That's a long fusion answer. But fusion is an important one because we, we're hearing the same kind of goofy things being said about batteries and about you know electric cars derivatively, about solar and wind. I mean, once machines are, you can build them 
at scale in a useful way, we then, by definition, know a lot about how to build them. So we know a lot about their trajectory. We know a lot about how much better they can get because of physics limits, because of materials limits, manufacturability. Where It's a very different um, domain than predicting how fast, for example, people will sign up for chat GPT. Well, 100 million people signed up in a month. But the, the build chat GPT, I would argue, uh, has, has taken 25 years. It started with, yeah. gens, you know, when NVIDIA introduced in 1998 the first GPU, a graphics processing unit. That, that was the uh, first vision moment for AI. And the first inkling that AI was possible was in 1986, when Hinton, the professor at University of Toronto, published the paper, seminal paper, on how to do machine learning, neural networks. But it took 20 years to build computer chips that could actually do that kind of thing. And another 20 years made those computer chips powerful enough and cheap enough where you could build a machine that could do what the kind of machine learning that ChatGPT does. So, you know, a mere, you know, it's just a mere 40 years <laughs> to go from an idea to a product that matters. That's why in my book, what I'm focused on are not the clickbait, clickbait breakthroughs that are typically in the, we all see scrolling. But what you really want to know is what was invented roughly 20 years ago, you know, roughly, that's, that was, that is, that it's just recently been made commercially useful, not at scale necessarily, might have small scale or about to be in scale. What are those things? Because those things tell you what the next 10 or 20 years look like, because well, well, that's what we know how to build. And that's why I'm very, that's why I put the Roaring 2020s in the subtitle, because the radical changes in the nature of things in the material science, computing science areas that have recently been done in the machine tool areas that have recently been done, they're just emerging. Uh, are utterly stunning. I mean, this is, I tell students, this is the most exciting time possible to live. I mean, it's not, there hasn't been this much efflorescence in new technology since the 1920s. It's just, this is, hence my, my subtitle. Uh, it's, it's uh, astonishing, but it's, the, it's not, it's not the, oh, fusion is here, t tomorrow trope, which is what, where so much of uh, not just media attention goes, but government and policy attention, which is, of course, costly. What are some of these things where you, where you see sort of the public's not excited enough? Where do you see the most impactful developments taking place? Well, you have to read my book for that. Isn't that the answer that I, that I would get? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think there's that's an important question, if, whether you're looking at it from a, the macro, where the, where's the world going perspective over the next decade versus the question might be, answer differently if thinking about where do I invest or what do I avoid investing in? I mean, it's the, it's the buggy whip question, right? You don't, you want to know what's, what's the buggy, buggy whip companies. You, you, don't, you didn't want to invest in Sears in the early 2000s, even though its stock price was very high in the early 2000s because Amazon was clearly on the rise as was all e-commerce. So that, those are, they're related, they're related. And, uh, sort of thinking about producing an investor's guide to the future based on the, the map in my book, because I didn't do that in the book because I didn't want it to be an investment book. But it, so the answer to your question is, first, it's the cloud itself. We're, we are at the uh, end of the beginning, not the beginning of the end of the scale of the infrastructure of the cloud, which I'll explain. So the cloud itself and everything it represents, early days, simplistically, if you think about our economy and how it's divided up, we have a bits and atoms world, right? doesn't mean that there are computers behind the scenes of car plants, but, but robots uh, are not building most things. People are. Uh, robots are common in manu automotive manufacturing, but they're not dominant. People are still dominant. Digitalization has occurred primarily in the digital industries. It's communications, finance, entertainment, right? And that's where you see... The, the revolution, that's about 20% of our GDP. It's been turned upside down by the internet and computing. It didn't turn it upside down in the 1960s. It just made it better, right? Computers and mainframes did not turn the economy upside down, but the desktop and the internet sure did. But that only turned upside down 20% of our economy. The other 80% is largely undigitalized in simplistic terms. The cloud is the combination of the cloud, low cost end, end devices, that is sensors, and, and um, communications and AI all in combination are democratizing the kind of computing power that upset 
the bits industries, entertainment, you know, news uh, and um, finance. That's going to that's going to democratize and upset the whole whole economy, the 80 percent, which is the essence of the book. So the cloud is an infrastructure matters because that's what's driving it. But behind the scenes, we have materials revolutions, which are synergistically linked to computing. We're doing what are called computational materials development now. Or put differently, I could simulate in a supercomputer the experiments that I would normally do in a lab up to a significant degree, both for biological things like antibiotics and for physical things like designing a new aircraft. This accelerates productivity, right? It accelerates manufacturability. That that was very difficult to do until the last half decade. Now it's becoming increasingly easy to do. So we're changing the material science world. We have things that we're calling for want of a better word, smart materials, adaptive materials. You don't see many of them in everyday products, self-healing materials, but they exist. They're commercial. They're viable. They're starting to show up. Back to my point about nascent revolutions. We're we're on the cusp of new classes of manufacturing tools themselves. So the class of tools that manufacture semiconductors uh, are automated and work at the atomic and molecular scale. That has not bled into other industries yet. But it's about to because we, we figured out how to do these things in other industries and other kinds of manufacturing. It, the most obvious example there is a 3D printer, which went through the classic Gartner hype cycle phase. When the people first heard about 3D printers, they thought Star Trek. Right? You have a digital file. I want a car. I hit print. It makes a car. Well, it turns out it's kind of harder to make a car than that. Right? You can make, you can make a, a wheel for the car that way, but it's actually easier to, cheaper to cast the wheel for the car. Because casting is just really good for high-volume products. But 3D printers have gone from a hype cycle to becoming a big industry, a multi-billion-dollar industry, inserting themselves into the part of the economy that is, hasn't gone to mass production, really. That is, if you think about all the things around you, there are very few things that we produce that are manufactured at the scale of the parts that go into a car. Everything else is smaller scale. It's hard to bring automation to those, to those scales. 3D printing and the cloud bring that kind of cost automation into micromanufacturing, small businesses and small enterprises. The other one uh, that I think is a big deal, of course, are, are bioelectronics, biologically compatible electronics. Um, we can, one can, there are FDA approved smart sensors that can be implanted, right? And, and, and uh, if you've had a surgery and we want to keep track of what's happened inside, it wirelessly communicates with your smartphone, tells the doctor things are going well. There are smart bandages now already that can tell you whether the wound under the bandage is actually um, healing properly or whether you're getting an infection. These are you know, individually, no big deal, but collectively, bioelectronics will become as big an industry as silicon electronics. You, you put... I put this in a simplistic terms. You can imagine um, a very near future where your vitamin or whatever you choose to take daily can, includes a, a consumable computer that is a biologically compatible smart sensor that takes all kinds of life, life functions that you want to know about to keep track of uh, inexpensively and safely because it's biologically compatible. In fact, decomposes just like food uh, when, when it's finished doing its job. It's not like you're eating uh, a silicon computer. You're eating something that actually dissolves the same way uh, food dissolves. These, these technologies and bioelectronics exist today. There's not getting a lot of publicity. Education and, um, and healthcare broadly are already undergoing revolutions. ChatGPT is an obvious impact in education, but it's going to now finally impact healthcare. We're finally going to get both visibility on biological functions that were impossible to monitor, but we can monitor at scale. Simplistic example, you go to the doctor, something wrong. We all have had this experience. Uh, when did you start feeling poorly? How did, what did you eat three days ago? I mean, you know all the kind of questions that you get. It's like, I don't know. I don't, I don't remember what I ate an hour ago sometimes. I mean, but if you have the capacity to do real-time biological sensing of your vital functions and you save that data securely uh, in your phone or in the cloud, first of all, securely, who cares if people know my blood pressure, except the insurance company, and maybe I don't want them to know it. But my point is that kind of data granularity is now clearly feasible. It's arriving. It's consequential. I mean, really, obviously, it's consequential. It's, it's the equivalent of the invention of the thermometer to know what your body temperature was precisely. It was a big deal. But now we're talking about the equivalent of that times a thousand, accessible in real time to you for precision medicine. These are These are not science fiction things. These are things that are being deployed at pre-commercial, early commercial phases as we speak. 
So when, when you put them all together, which is what I try to do in my book, you, you look at this and say, ah, this, is a big, this is a big deal. Now, the thread is, again, the cloud, because the ability to do a lot of these things in material science and manufacturing and education, use the platform of the cloud, use AI, use computing, but they aren't computing per se, be the equivalent of saying, I wish I was an investor in McDonald's at the dawn of the, uh, of the build out of the highways of America. It would have been pretty smart. You wouldn't call McDonald's a car company, but it was made possible by the highways and the car, by definition. That's the era we're entering with the cloud. We're entering an era where companies we're calling tech companies, like Uber and Airbnb, they aren't tech companies anymore. McDonald's a car company. They use the platforms that enable a new way of operating and behaving that is not just more productive and therefore creates wealth, but offers things you couldn't do before, which is wealth creating as well. So the constellation of these things is greater now than any time in a century. And as I said earlier, the last time we had a confluence of these kinds of revolutions in transportation, manufacturing, and communications, the 20s, that was the dawn of the telephone. That was the dawn of the car. That was the dawn of the airplane. That was the dawn of pharmaceuticals. This is the same, the same, the same constellation of things maturing independently, contemporaneously. It's really magical. It's really incendiary. It's really exciting. Um, on the energy side of the house, it means if we get wealthy faster than people think, we're going to use a lot more energy than anybody imagines too. I mean, it's, these are related magisteria. And, and Mark, one of the things I was thinking uh, as we were talking about fusion earlier, um, it, it sort of came into you my you mind. Can't, you can't let fusion go, can you? Chris? I, I, I can't let it go. I don't, don't okay. want to let it go. Okay. The, the thing is, it feels like there are certain classes of, of activity, of information, of process that the cloud can absolutely accelerate. And, and certain companies, they couldn't even exist without the cloud. And right. they're doing so much better because of these platforms. And then... In the physical world, sometimes, whether it's certain battery technologies, fusion, what have you, there still are certain rules, certain timelines that, as, as you outlined in part of your answer, you, you still have to stick to those timelines, even though we've increased processing power, we have machine learning and artificial intelligence yeah. and all these things. So I, I would just be curious to know, as we, as we get down to, to the end here, how you sort of think of those sort of two classes, the things that can be accelerated significantly versus those things where they're still just going to take a certain amount of time. Yeah. So you're preaching, I mean, you're preaching my gospel here. I mean, that's exactly what I, I spent a lot of my time on are these category errors people make. And I try to illuminate them in my book because some things uh, are bound by laws of physics, gravity, inertia, friction. You don't get rid of them. You can do, you can pretend they don't exist, but it's like pretending you can fly by flapping your arms harder. It's not a good thing to jump off the cliff. You know, you need to build something different, like an airplane or parachute. So, that there, are, so knowing what the what the nature of the technology is and where it's applicable, and it's and the velocity with which it can change, it is anchored in physics, and then it's anchored in the engineering, if you like, associated with that domain. But it always starts with the underlying physics of what's possible. When you move atoms. Moving bits, the simple example is like, I can transmit a picture more effectively by stripping out the white space, compressing it, and send the picture. I can't do that with a person. In Star Trek, you know you can do it, but in the real world, if I take out the white space from your body, I, I, it's called killing you. I mean, there's no, there's, so I, you always weigh the same unless you get too fat, and it always costs the amount of energy to move you, and I give or take a very narrow band. So th this is, this is the, the problem with, um, Exciting about technology, it's being transferred inappropriately in the wrong categories. So one of the most common things I encounter is people waving around the tech of a smartphone and saying, look at this, look how fast it's changed. Energy tech, clean tech, that's going to be just as fast. No, it's not. Bat batteries don't follow Moore's law. If, you know, if, if batteries followed Moore's law at the exponential rate of Moore's law, uh, we'd already have batteries the size of a peanut that could drive your car for the lifetime of the car on one charge. That's what a Moore's Law rate does. You don't have to be a physicist to know that does, that happens in comic books, you know, in the power pack for Iron Man. It doesn't happen in the real world we live in. So these category errors are serious because they're, they're causing uh, our government to do really, really dopey things. Uh, the belief that something can happen that won't happen, not maybe, but won't happen. Uh, let, me, uh, let me intersect... Uh, what Professor Siegel was saying was something that's in my book that is, it was deliberately in my book. And that's this, the, 
you know, lab- labor inflation is really important, as he pointed out in the, in his, the opening remarks. It really is. And that's why the Fed is trying to kill jobs, simplistically, because it makes it easier for employers to hire people without paying higher wages. So we know demographically that's a losing proposition, because as long as there's g- economic growth, we have, a, we have a declining labor pool, especially of age, especially in, especially in the skilled trades, that we, w- there's no way the Fed can solve the problem with interest rates. We're going to have a labor shortage going forward for decades, if not a century, and setting aside immigration, legal and otherwise. We're going to have a labor shortage. Skilled, skills require time, whether you're legal or illegal. It takes time to get skills. So we've got the government right now pumping money, and they haven't spent it yet. Trillions of dollars being allocated, appropriated, and about to be spent to reshore manufacturing, whether chips or car plants, battery plants. These are incredibly labor-intensive activities. We don't have the labor pool here. This is inflationary on two counts. They're printing money, which is inflationary. They're stimulating demand for labor, which we, have, we don't have the supply for. And they're stimulating demand for materials to build those things. Batteries take, just so you have this in your head, the battery in an electric car weighs 1,000 pounds, requires digging up 500,000 pounds of the earth to make one battery, one. So very labor and machine-intensive and energy-intensive. So that's inflationary all around. And the longer we do that, the harder it is, it's going to be to tamp down inflation. The only saving grace is that the combination of AI bringing efficiencies, insights, and freeing up humans from doing repetitive, drudgery, routine tasks, which AI is particularly good at doing, freeing those people up to be upskilled to do the non-routine tasks where we have the demand for labor is a savior from AI. AI came around the, exactly the right time to free up some of the labor pool to be upskilled. It's not going to kill jobs. It's going to make it possible to fill jobs. And robots, which is sort of a big piece of my book, if I were going to pick one technology that hasn't had its chat GPT moment yet, it's model T moment is what I call it in my book because I wrote my book before ChatGPT was known. Mark, this has been a fantastic conversation. I love talking to optimists. You can find Mark on the Last Optimist podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can listen to us that are behind the Markets podcast. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris, on the soundboard. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on Sirius XM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.